You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. What's up, everybody? Greetings, 11 a.m. service. How we doing? Doing good? Yeah, very good. Uh, thrilled about Project Christmas starting. I hope you'll participate in that and just participate in it again and again and again. It's a big deal. We help a ton of people this way, and I'm thankful to be part of a church community that thinks about everybody around them in the world, around our, our space, our community. Uh, glad to be a part of that with you. We are in a series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've got two weeks left. Two weeks left. We'll wrap it up next week. Uh, but just a heads up for today, in case you missed the announcement last week or the church email this week, uh, I'll be looking at a specific topic today, the topic of sex and sexuality. So if you have someone with you who you feel, you know, a message that's PG or PG-13 rated, for whom that person, you know, this message would be inappropriate, this is your moment to reconnect them with MKids over here or Mosaic students across the street. All right, but before we begin, just a quick sort of disclaimer here. I want to make some space for the reality, so you know that I know, that a discussion about this, a discussion about Christianity, the Bible, and sex, it may create some discomfort for some of us today. So if your sort of fight or flight is already being triggered, you want to get up and leave right now, or you're thinking like, why didn't I stay home today? You probably aren't alone. That's why I'm telling you this. And given the complexity of the topic, the, the deep pain some of you may have experienced in this area because of things done to you or maybe some potentially sort of dodgy stuff that you've been taught or you've heard through Christian folks over the years, your discomfort here is justified for sure. However, we're going to see in just a minute that the Apostle Paul's thought that our theology about sex, that was a vital piece of our faith as Christians. And in case you think Paul was off, please just know that when Jesus talked about this as well, we'll look at that. And he believed our bodies and our choices mattered quite a lot to God. The Bible just has a lot to say about the topic. And just in case no one's ever mentioned this before, as a reminder, God invented sex. <laughs> Which kind of makes him seem way more interesting somehow, right? All that to say, let's take a deep breath together. Yes, here we go in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you in how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and in that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. 
That's the reading of his word today, all his people said. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Someone by the name of Andrew Del Bonco, you may have heard the name or more likely not. He is a secular humanities professor at Columbia University. He's not a Christian and not too long ago, he wrote a book which sort of intersects our series today, and here's the title. It's called The Real American Dream, The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. Great title, right? And in it, he asked the question, why does it feel like our nation is, is fragmenting in so many ways, like it's falling apart at the seams in so many places, and here's his answer. He said, over time, America, he said, has had three dreams or three great visions for what our nation and country should be all about. Initially, originally, first dream, for the most part, for those who came here and those who founded our nation, despite their many flaws, they they had a vision for America as a land and as a people that existed for God. God was our national story. This land was for God, and that story, however true or false it was in reality, that that story was ours. The story of the greatness of God was what held us together. But moving into the 1800s, he pointed out, that that story changed. In our second story, America became not for God, but America became for the world. God went to the background and America became the hero. We were the city on the hill, the savior of the world. And that story held through basically the end of World War II and shortly after. And that's part of, sure, what inspired so many people to bravely and sacrificially give their lives for this country over and over. Not necessarily the story of the greatness of God, but the story of the greatness of America. And while that wasn't as large as that first story, it was still something larger than our current modern story, which is this. Now, DeBanco points out, Americans don't live for God or country anymore, but we live for ourselves. Or live for ourselves. Our greatest good is not God or country but the individual. My express self, we believe that's my highest good and anything that gets in the way of me expressing my authentic self, my true self, my best self. Anything that gets in the way of that is just crushed and run over. Our national story, he said, is now the story of the self. Why do I mention all of this? I mention this because when we come to a text like this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, where Paul says, the point of living is to please God, we don't know what to do with it. We just stare at it, minds shut, our mouths open. Like, do you mean to say, Paul, the point of human life is to please God even with my body? Paul says unequivocally and especially for the Christian. The answer is yes. So I'm highlighting what Dr. Del Banco said as a means of explaining why why you might have a hard time when you read verses like this, verse 2 and 3. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority, uh uh-oh, of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So here's my question today. Why does Paul, and indeed the whole Bible, insist that what we do with our bodies and our sexuality can please or displease God? That's what we're going to try to get to today, and I'm going to try to answer that with three affirmations. Three affirmations, and here they are. In the Christian view, sex is 
three things primarily. Number one, sex is something glorious. It's affirmation. Number two, I thought I'd get an amen at least one today. Good Lord. I don't know why. I'd... Man. Number two. Number two, sex is something gated, gated by God. And number three, sex is something to be guarded by us. Glorious, gated by God, and guarded by us. Let's move through these in turn. Here we go. Number one, the Bible's affirmation is that, yes, sex is something glorious. Verse three, once more. Again, it's God's will. You should be sanctified. You should avoid sexual immorality. Now, if this is a struggle for us culturally, it was a struggle for them as much or more so. One of the best preserved earliest Christian writings you can find all over the internet is something called the Letter to Diognetus. Fascinating document. It was written by an anonymous early Christian, written from him to one of his non-Christian friends, the Greco-Roman world, to explain the faith and the practices to non-Christians about how Christians lived and behaved. And one of the most fascinating lines he wrote that you can pull out and read is this. He said this, they, Christians, share their meals, but not their wives. They share their meals, but not their wives. Christians, he said, share their tables, but not their beds. Why was this so countercultural? Well, Greco-Roman people tended to only share their table with people who could benefit them. Jesus actually talked quite a lot about this in his parables. Uh, they were exclusive with their table. They kept away the poor, but they were inclusive with their bed. They welcomed quite a few, especially the men. Uh, for example, Demosthenes, he's the famous Athenian speaker. If you did philosophy class, you probably heard about him. Demosthenes said this was the common and rightful state of ancient sexual relations. Roughly 400 BC, he wrote this. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children. Of course, all that we would go boo. Right, you know. And when you add in the use of prostitutes, a fourth class of partner, the Greco-Roman male had a, uh, you know, in a rotation, shall we say, of four or more sexual partners at any given time. See, they, they shared their beds freely. But Christians lived in reverse. They shared their money with many, their table with many, but their bed with one. And over time, that, you know this, became the dominant view of the Roman Empire. Why? Was it because it's such a low view, an unimportant view of sex? No, it's because of the opposite. This is a high and glorious view, and here's why. The Christian view of sex is that it is. Paul puts it right here. It's something that's connected to our sanctification. The process of becoming more and more glorious like Jesus who has saved us. That's God's heart for you, by the way, to make you and me more and more like him, increasingly glorious, brighter, fuller, not thinner and dimmer of soul. Now, how does that happen? Look, we're not told to avoid sex, period, but to avoid sexual immorality. And therefore, by experiencing sex in the way that God intended, that's point two, we become more and more like God, who's infinitely holy and loving. And we'll get to that, point three. In this view, the glorious view, the Christian view of sex, it critiques two other, go through these quick, two other common cultural views. 
The first of which I'll call this, the Christian view, critiques the cosmopolitan view. As in the magazine, Cosmopolitan, Cosmo, and all its spawn, ilk, and offspring. I came across a famous interview with the editor-in-chief of Cosmo. Her name was Helen Gurley Brown, probably heard of her. Uh, She died a few years ago, but late in her 70s, she said this. She said, I've always said that one of the best three things in life was sex. That's what she said. Her interviewer said back to her, well, what are the other two? And she shrugged and said, who knows? (laughs) Which was her way of saying, of course, that sex was one, two, and three. And when the interviewer said, well, like, what about love? Shouldn't love at least be in your top three in life? She said, Love is impossible to find and even harder to have. What she's saying. She's saying you can't always get love, so get sex whenever and with whomever. Now that's the cosmo view. That's our modern view, but I don't know if you caught it. It's not really that progressive. It's actually regressive. It's going back to the past. That's what the pagans believe. It's what the Greco-Roman world practiced. And Paul says you'll only do that. You'll only share your bed freely when and if you don't know God. All right. That's the first view the Christian view critiques. It also critiques this, so on the other hand, something I'll call the dirty view. The dirty view, the view that sex is sort of dirty or disgusting or debasing. And if the world at large has missed it with the cosmo view, sometimes, not always, but sometimes the church has missed it with this dirty view. But the dirty view isn't a, isn't a right view at all either because if you read the entirety of the Christian scriptures, which you should, you'll see why we can truthfully say the Christian faith is extremely sex positive, to use a cultural catchphrase. Go read parts of the Proverbs and Song of Songs, just maybe not to your kids at bedtime and story time. I can't even begin to name in a public setting what these metaphors mean. I'll give you one. May your males, may your fountain be blessed. I mean, it's like more explicit than Esther's Follies in downtown Austin if you've been to that show. Some of you are like, what is that? Good, you don't know. All right. Translators won't even print some of the wordings. Why can I say the Christian faith is so sex positive? It's because of this. Because the Christian faith, more than any other, is extremely body positive. Body positive. See, unlike the Cosmo view, which says that your body is amoral and it belongs to you, instead the Christian faith insists your body's brimming with moral potential. You can do such great things for the world and for others, and, and it belongs to God, a good God. And unlike the dirty view, which says, like, your body is bad, oh, the Christian faith, no, it says your body was made good by God. He made your sexual organs Good, very good actually. And the body isn't something dirty to escape, but something that can be used again to honor God and others right now. So that's number one. The Christian view of sex is glorious in that, not avoiding it, but by using it rightly, Paul says it actually is connected to making us more and more like the glorious God who made sex and us. That's number one. But number two At the same time, yes, sex is, to use this metaphor, gated. Something gated by God. That is, God puts a a fence around it to keep in 
what he wants and keep out what he doesn't want and for our good as well. Again, you see this in Paul's insistence that God's will is, and by the way, that phrase God's will, that's only used like four or five times, I think, in the whole Bible. It ought to get your attention when it's connected to a topic. Paul says it's God's will, not his suggestion, not his slight preference, not his coin toss, you know, but his will that we avoid not sexual immortality. As I heard one college student say one time, he was giving his testimony about how Jesus saved him. The Lord saved me from sexual immortality, he said confidently. <laughs> we knew what he meant. Still kind of funny. God's will, Paul says, we avoid sexual immorality. And the Greek word Paul uses for that is a word you've likely heard before, at least the root word. Uh, it's the word porneia. Pornea, from which we, of course, get our word pornography. And pornea, in Paul's mind, means fundamentally any way sex is used outside the Bible's unidirectional aim for sex, which is in the context of marriage and in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. We'll come back to that. This is the historic, consistent biblical view. You cannot like that. You can hate it. You may think, man, I don't want to do that, but that's just what it says. I'm, don't, you know, don't shoot the mailman. Uh, we are not to engage in, Paul says, or share our bed in these ways, among others, through premarital sex, extramarital affairs, polyamorous relationships, bigamy, or creating or consuming pornography, which, of course, includes platforms like, but not limited to, OnlyFans creators. OnlyFans consumers. See, stating at any time that, you know, it doesn't hurt anyone or it makes me feel empowered, those are not righteous biblical justifications. I mean, by that logic, someone could take your car, steal your bank account, take your kids. I felt empowered. Okay, it's weird. Having said that, I do have empathy, and I think Jesus does too, for the teacher, among other occupations. He's trying to feed his or her family on like a salary of $40,000 if that's what they make and they're looking for another stream of income just to take care of their family and a, you know, an economy gone crazy and inflation and all that. But turning to porn creation as a means of supplementing your income, that does not square with the Christian view for the use of sex. Stuff like Pornhub, OnlyFans, that's sharing your bed with many, not with one. And I know, I get, man, the pressure in our culture to consume porn is just enormous. It's like driving down a, you know, a, a one-lane highway marked with potholes everywhere. It's hard to avoid it. It's hard to get around. I guess so don't hear any shame from me at all in anything you hear today. Please, just hear my sadness. That's the way the world is. The world in which we exist and for us, those who of us have kids, our kids are growing up in. But Paul says no matter how you are involved in pornea, if you are, if you are, you are taking advantage of someone somewhere. You are wronging them. You are hurting them and yourself, even if you say that you can't see it. And yes, this is why. The, ultimately, the Christian view of sex does put a fence around. It limits sexual expression, not just to marriage, but specifically a marriage between one man and one woman. And right here, I know you're like, oh, Lord, I know this teaching may offend you. I get it. Like we said earlier, it's hard to wrap our minds around the thought that made anything exist higher 
than our perceived right for full self-expression any way we define that. That's hard for us, again, because of this story we're told in our culture. We exist for ourselves. So the Bible might offend us or it might make us want to walk away, but I'm pleading with you today, please don't do that. Let me try to put that thought in some context. To say today, if you are offended by that, to say, I'm offended at what the Bible teaches about sexuality, and therefore I will not be a Christian, those two things don't go together, or they're at the very least backwards. Remember, here's the point, here's the idea, as important as this topic is today, why we're doing it, the Christian faith and the Bible, it doesn't hang on its teaching about sexuality. It does hang on whether or not Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So even if what you're offended, if you're offended by what you hear today, your offense doesn't mean that Jesus Christ wasn't factually, literally, historically, bodily raised from the dead in human history. And therefore he's not and couldn't be the savior of the world. But again, we have a hard time with this teaching that sex is only, by God's perspective, for a marriage between a man and a woman. Again, primarily because of the story we're taught, which is that our bodies are ours to do with as we please. But may I remind you, that's not the story literally billions of people on the other side of the world are taught. Hmm? Why is our cultural story right and theirs wrong? Or vice versa, theirs right and ours wrong. And again, by the way, do you know that what we believe about sex and gender in our culture, it's changing all the time. It's changing all the time. Did you catch that documentary about Britney Spears from like two years ago? It's like, you know, COVID binge watching, you know. If you saw it, then you, you saw it. You saw men and women alike like falling all over themselves, apologizing left and right for how they talked about Britney and treated Britney and told jokes about Britney's body and Britney's sexual expression. You say, Morgan, well, that, that needed to be changed. Oh, okay, I agree, but I think my point still stands. I mean, 10 years ago, many people, including many powerful women, who interviewed her thought that talking about sex, gender, body in a certain way was acceptable. Now talking in those ways is not anymore. Who's to say, though, it won't change again in another 10 years? See, sophisticated, talented, educated, culturally elite people in this nation have literally flip-flopped their deeply held beliefs on sex, gender, and the body in less than a decade. Why should we throw out Christianity and the Bible, and its view of sexuality when our cultural norms on sexuality and gender are changing by the minute. See, as Lewis put it like this, everything that isn't eternal is eternally out of date. But the Bible, the Bible doesn't talk as much as much about premarital sex, same-sex expression or attraction or other forms of sexual expression, as much as it does talk about what sex is for and how it is to be used. So let me say three things quickly. Number one, First, sex, in the biblical view, was not designed primarily to be a form of self-fulfillment, self-discovery, or self-empowerment. It was designed to be a form of self-giving as a means of creating and sustaining a community called a family. Sex is supposed to reflect the physical vulnerability and bodily self-giving that's a part of a whole life commitment. In other words, to be physically vulnerable with someone you're not legally, emotionally, permanently committed to, the Bible's view, that's to misuse the sex act. You say, Morgan, I don't need to be married to prove I love the person I'm sleeping with. Respectfully, 
Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, you do. Actually, yeah, you do. who's more committed? Who's more committed? The non-married couple hmm, having sex or the couple who has intertwined their bills, maybe their names, their bank accounts, their schedules, their priorities legally with the state and in front of an entire community and publicly said, we will live like this until death do us part or a if they don't, then there's a whole lot of pain that happens on the backside. Of course, no, you, you don't need to spend 50K on cupcakes to do a wedding or buy that fancy dress or get a crazy ring you're going to be in debt for for a decade. But I want to say, we all know that saying to another person, I belong to you till death do us part and have every single aspect in your life reflect that with an enormous price tag to pay if you don't, we all know that is something different altogether see and when we become vulnerable in every other way now we become become vulnerable physically second sex is also a way for the diverse glories of male and female to be reunited this is the creation theology is a big part of this the genders have unique glories that can only come together when they are commingled to the sex act homosexuality then specifically uses sexuality in a way that does not complete creation. And third, Jesus Christ, in one of his few statements on human sexuality, he does affirm the marriage covenant as being between something gated, as, as in being between a man and a woman. Twice he does this, both in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10. The point is, instead of going down the list and saying, hey, Jesus, is this in, is this out? Like, you know, what do you think about this? I'll get back to you. What about this, Jesus? Let me consult Dean Blandino in New York in our studio, and he'll get a ruling on the play. That's for all you football fans. No, Jesus says what God has joined, what God has affirmed, one man and one woman in a covenant marriage for a lifetime, he says, let no one pull that apart. Now, most Christians, even those who don't like this, are going to acknowledge this is just what the Christian scriptures teach. They may argue they don't like it. Times have changed. They want to do something different. But there's a remarkable, even scholarly consensus. This, at a root level, just is the Bible's view. And again, if this offends you, please consider again that most objections yours might be culturally rooted, which just might point to the reality the Bible's not the product of any one culture. It ain't the white man's religion or the black man's religion, the Asian man or woman's religion. It's a gift from God to the world, see. Before I move on to point three, let me also tell you what the Bible's view on this is. Luke chapter 10, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan about a Samaritan man who came upon a Jewish man who was beaten and left for dead by the side of the road. And those two peoples, you know this, were considered to be enemies in that culture, they were at a cultural war with each other. But in the story Jesus told, the Samaritan man cared for his enemy. He bandaged his wounds. He paid for the recovery. Uh, he risked his own reputation to simply acknowledge the humanity of the one left by the road and beaten up pretty bad by life. The point is, we are supposed to care for and love even those we disagree with. It doesn't matter what your belief is. This is showing us you're supposed to show care and warmth and compassion towards others, even if you disagree. Therefore, any Christian who has abused someone who identifies as LBGTQIA+, made derogatory jokes about them, used slurs toward, even been cold toward them, needs to repent. Because those things contradict the teaching, clear teaching, of Jesus Christ as well. 
Let me remind you, no one is saved by their heterosexuality. It doesn't save us. A Christian is a person who's saved by their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus himself. And then, yes, to follow Jesus as Lord means he has, to use Paul's word, authority over our bodies and how we use them as well. Summarize of verse 8. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction, Paul's, by the way, not Morgan's, <laughs> Paul's, does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you his what? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And that aims us now. My last point. Sex number one is glorious. Number two, it's gated by God. And finally, it is to be number three, something to be guarded by us. What do I mean? Paul says, verse seven, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. This repeats hundreds of verses we could talk about. But to be holy, of course, means to be set apart for the purposes of God. Set apart for the purposes of God. Jewish people did this with curtains, candlesticks, spoons. How do we do this? Here it is. You may know. Recently, Carrie and I and some of our other leaders and staff got to visit Cape Town, South Africa for an international conference with Every Nation, our parent ministry. And the last day we were there, on my birthday, Carrie and I took a trip to see Kirsten Bosch Botanical Gardens, which probably sounds as boring to you as it did at first to me. I go to a garden, yes. All I can say is this, if you've seen the moment in Jurassic Park, ah, where the gate parks open, the park gates open, and a lush, flowered, mountainous tree landscape appears shrouded in sunlit mist, you have an idea of the size and the scope of the National Park of South Africa. It's enormous, isn't it? It's breathtaking. To call it a park sort of, you know, does it a disservice. But as you walk through the park, there is this one path that sort of circles around and down and leads to the bottom of the whole thing at the very center. At the center of the park, there is this little stream that flows, and one little stream gives life to the whole thing, the whole park. But the stream itself flows from a single, small pool about the size of a large hot tub, and there it is. And at the bottom of the pool, in the back to your right, like the two sides of the human heart, are these two small springs. And they pump up water from below the ground. The water is immaculately pure. You can drink it without filtration. It's incredibly smooth. If you put a book at the bottom of the pond, you could read it from eight feet down. And you can see the two springs there, if you were there, gurgling, pumping up gallon after gallon of water that flows, that little channel going out. It goes into a spring and feeds the whole park. But the pool itself and the springs at the bottom are guarded. Don't get, quite get it in this picture. They're guarded by a little wall that's built around it. And a sign nearby, right by the wall, says this. It says this water is incredibly pure. It keeps the park alive. But it's also incredibly sensitive. Even one person stepping on these springs, stepping in them, could damage them permanently. And the outflow to the rest of the park would be corrupted. And I saw that sign. I looked at the pool. And I remembered, and maybe you are thinking about this too, remember Proverbs 4.23, who says, Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. The NIV says, from it flows everything you do. So how do we keep our bodies holy, set apart for God? Here it is. It's by setting apart and guarding your heart first. See, we guard 
our sexuality by guarding our hearts. Listen, the reason that I don't give my body to another woman is because I keep my heart only for one. Keep it for Carrie. I don't get emotionally connected to another woman ever for any reason, no matter what, period, no excuses. My body stays for her because I guard my heart for her. See, something can only pollute the body of the park if it's polluted the heart of the park first. Putting in movies or TV or videos or TikToks that kick up the stuff that pollute us on the way out. That's one way, one way that can cause us to misuse sexuality. Or maybe, maybe this might be you. Maybe the reason that you misuse or have misused your body in some way is because someone, someone's damaged your heart along the way. Maybe someone like stepped on your spring, kicked up dirt in there. It's been bruised. It's been damaged. Maybe the reason that you... Yeah, you find it difficult to honor God with your body. It's either because of the stuff you've put in or something someone else has done. And so now what comes out downstream isn't full of life, but something else. But I'm going to tell you, there is healing for you today, no matter what. God hasn't called us to be impure, but to live a holy life set apart for him. But did you know, he never asks us to do anything he hasn't done first. Do you know he set apart himself for you first? Jesus Christ said, John 17, Father, for your sake, for the sake of others, everyone else, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart. I live a holy life. I'm willing to be even cut on and cut off for others. And he was. And he lived a holy life for you, which means this. You and I are not just saved by the love of God in general, but by the holiness of of Jesus Christ in specific. Our God isn't only loving, of course he is, but he's also what? Holy, 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 like holy in triplicate. He is holy love, exclusive love. And he's gone first and said, this is how much I love you. And he stretched out his arms and he died. And he asks in a way, now how much do you love me? See, in the end, The Christian choice to please God and live a life that's holy comes from looking, not just inside, but at the outstretched arms of Christ on the cross, gone in our place. It's the ultimate sign from God that says, I love you and you can trust me. I hope we, as we begin to pray here and close, I hope we can say yes to him today. Father, we come in Jesus' name Looking at a tough bit of scripture, we thank you for it. We thank you for what it calls us to do, to wrestle with it at the very least. And to lean in, to listen and obey. And Lord, I'm praying right now for us today, for whatever was or wasn't said perfectly or captured something inadequately or not holistically. Lord, that you help us, help me with that. And Lord, I'm praying against any feelings of shame or condemnation. I pray would only feel your heart for us. That you want us to walk in relationship with you for the sake of the world. That we've allowed stuff in by your Holy Spirit to come filter all that. And where we've been stepped on and bruised and damaged by others because that happens all the time. We're bit by bit by your Spirit and others.
me and listen, hey, here, before, before Keon comes and gives us a benediction, let me just say this. Our heart for you in the Mosaic is that you would experience that healing in some way. We have Celebrate Recovery, like you've heard. We've got a team of counselors. We've got, of course, our pastors and community group leaders. The point is we don't want anyone to walk out of here feeling shame in any way, but only hope and help and healing and a life aimed at experiencing all of that. No judgment. There's only encouragement. Come on, let's live for God together. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.